drop of sweat materializes in the dirt between his feet. With his hands on his knees, panting, Caleb is just trying to catch his breath. Finally, his shift is over. It's time for one of the 11 other spies to take his place. Unfortunately, he drew the short straw and he had to take his turn at the steepest part of Mount Horeb on the return home. For the last 40 days, it's been a grueling adventure and journey as this cell of spies snuck their way through a city, taking notes and observing this land that laid before them. But the cargo they were bringing back with them was well worth it. This massive branch of grapes that was so big, it required two grown men to hoist it on their soldiers and carry it back. And it was going to be worth it because it would be proof of the land that God had promised. You see, these just weren't any grapes from any land. These were the grapes from the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. As the trek home continued, Caleb found himself at the back of the pack talking with his buddy Joshua. And he began to kind of notice that over time, the two of them kind of felt a tension, a distance from the other 10 spies in the crowd. You see, what they saw didn't intimidate them. What Joshua and Caleb observed, they knew it would be hard, they knew it would be difficult, but they knew even greater with this confidence that God who led them there would be the God who leads them through it. But they got this sense that the other 10 weren't quite in the same boat. There might have been a different narrative that they would give to the rest of the Israelite people. See, if there's ever a carrot to chase, we might say that the promised land was the biggest of all. You see, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, were about to be given a gift, a gift they did not deserve, nor did they earn. And he led them there. Be the most wonderful time and moment in their history up until this point. Their lives would be rich and lush and full. But what we are about to see is that instead of getting it all, they will reject it because they will refuse to remove themselves from the center of their meistic universe. And the decision, the choice that they will make will result in a 40-year wandering in the desert instead of a triumphant entry into a land flowing with milk and honey. I want to welcome you to week three of our teaching series called Chasing Carrots. We're glad that you could join us today. Whether you're tuning in on Fox, Facebook, Church Online, YouTube, Ask Jeeves, Napster, wherever it is, we're just glad that you are here with us. Uh, we want to encourage you to take a moment, go to this website, fcc-online.org. It's a great website to find out more about us as a church, ways to fill out a connect card, prayer request, to get some sermon notes, find out more about our COVID relief plan, as well as join one of our new seasonal groups as well too. We're in week three of this teaching series, Chasing Carrots, where we're talking about how all of us have this tendency to kind of go after things in our life. And sometimes those are good things, right? 
But sometimes those carrots in front of us are things that we wish maybe took a different shape or form. And today, we're going to chase after the carrot of comparison. Or maybe see, maybe there's something a little bit better we should be chasing in our lives. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the entire Bible, the fifth book in the Old Testament. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible are often referred to as the Pentateuch, the Torah, the books of the law, the books of Moses. If you want to thumb over to Numbers chapter 13 as well, that would be a great spot because there's a parallel story that we're going to look at too today. As you're turning there to Deuteronomy, what Deuteronomy exists as, it's kind of Moses, the leader of the Israelite people. You know, perhaps the one, you've heard the story, you've seen the prince of Egypt, the guy who led the Israelite people out of Egypt, out of the oppression, out of the slavery, by the miraculous works and the power of God, where the Red Sea parts and they walk through land. Well, this is Moses beginning to recount their history getting them to urge them to remember the faithfulness towards God, the obedience that we're called to live out. And throughout this, we'll begin to notice a trend with Israel that they complain a whole lot more than they find themselves content that can oftentimes lead them to a spot of comparison. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 19 through 20 uh, is kind of where our story begins. We begin to see this notion that, that God's people have been led to the promised land by the, by the Spirit of God. They're on top of this mountain called Mount Horeb, and they are seeing the promised land for the first time with their own eyes. And so picking up in Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, verse 21, this is where we see the promise reminded it says, see, the Lord your God has given you the land, the land they are seeing with their own eyes in this moment. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And so here it is. Here is the promise. Moses is reminding him, this is the land. This is the place. For centuries, for decades, we, we, we've known about this. We've heard about this. We've, we've relied on this. And finally, it is here. It is before us. And I want you to, to, to take heart in that final part of verse 21. When Moses reminds the people, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. It's kind of a common phrase throughout the Old Testament. It's their way of saying, remember that God is with you. You have nothing to fear of what may be in store because your God is on your side. And you have nothing to be discouraged about because your God will be with you no matter what. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged because God is with you. From here, we're going to see that uh, the, the narrative kind of begins to shift. Moses had this leadership council and they come up with this idea. And they kind of go to Moses. They're like, yo, Mo, we know that God has given us this land. We know that he's kind of promised this to us for a while now. Um, but, you know, why don't we just kind of get some people to just go check things out? All right, why don't we gather up, uh, how about one guy from each tribe? So we get 12 dudes together. Let's send them into the land and let's kind of see what they think. Let, let them go check it out and report back to us. And after 40 days, these 12 spies return home carrying this massive branch of grapes from this land flowing with milk and honey. 
40 days, 40, the number of victory. And this is how the report starts, picking back up in verses 24 and 25. It says these words, it says, they left and went up to the hill country and they came to the valley of Eshkol and they explored it taking with them some of the fruit. This is the grapes of the land. They brought it down to us, the people of Israel, and they reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. This is their response. This is their report. Imagine it's, a, it's the biggest Zoom call you could ever be on. Every single Jewish man or woman in convert, they're all together. The people of Israel, they are waiting for this report. They've been dying for decades, for years, centuries to finally hear this news that not only does this land exist, but this land is here. It is finally ours from the taking. And they hold up this branch of these grapes just full of flavor, nothing like they've ever seen before. And all the grandmas are beginning to, to kind of, their mouths are watering, thinking, I'm going to make jelly and I'm going to make crepes and I'm going to make sandwiches. I'm just going to use everything. This land, this is going to be amazing for us. And so the spies, they're, they're given this victorious, this celebratory account of this land, this promised land. However, the report takes a slight different tone after this point. Look at how the report continues after they said, look at this land that God is giving to us. Picking back up in verse 26, Moses recounts, he's saying, but remember, you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. If you skip over to Numbers chapter uh, 13, there's a, a little bit extra here that I want to get in this account. Numbers 13, it says, it says, and then they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size, we saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. See, here's what's happening. The 10 spies, they say, yeah, the land is lush. But there's already people there. They're bigger. They're taller. They're stronger. They're more powerful than we are. We feel like grasshoppers compared to these giants. Through this account, you learn of two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua said, yeah, yeah, we get that. We understand that, but God is with us. God is on our side. He has led us here. He has been good. He has been faithful. He is not going to leave us behind now. But the report of the 10 other spies will win out. So let me paint a picture for you here for a moment. For two years, the people of Israel, 
They've been rescued out of Egypt. Moses has performed signs and miracles and plagues and wonders through the power of God through him. Pharaoh lets them go. He parts the Red Sea. They walk across the land. They're sitting on this century-old promise of this land set aside for them because they are chosen people by a cloud, a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They wander through the desert following where God leads them and he gets them to this peak, to this summit on the doorstep of their promised land. Here it is, God is saying. The land I've told you about, this land I've promised you, it is yours. Go, take it. And even though God has already given it to them, they send in some spies. You know, <laughs> just to check things out. Just to make sure. Just to, to double check God's handiwork on this. And then all of a sudden, they begin to focus on what is in front of them instead of the God behind them who had led them to this promise. They begin to compare. That's what comparison happens to us. As we begin to dwell on what is before you, not the who is behind you. Have you ever felt like that before? Perhaps you've making some strides in your life, in your career, in a relationship. Perhaps you've been taking steps in your walk with Jesus and then something flashes before your eyes. Something comes across the screen. Someone enters back in from stage left and all of a sudden you begin to think, you know what, maybe I am not quite where I thought I was. Maybe God isn't nearly as good as I once hoped. Maybe, maybe I'm not really deserving of this promise that God has seemingly given to me. I've been there. I'm sure you have too. So let me ask you, where do you think comparison comes from? Why do we compare ourselves to other people in life? In 1954, there was a psychologist by the name of Leon Festinger. And Dr. Festinger kind of talked about uh, his finding and his research in comparison. He says, what comparison truly is, is it's our way of evaluating ourselves to other people. And he found that there are kind of two forms of comparison. This won't surprise you, that there is upward comparison and downward comparison. But over time, he began to notice that both upward and downward comparison were a double-edged sword. You see, in downward comparison, while it may give us a little self-esteem, it also teaches us to focus on the negative attributes of other people. In the same way, though, upward comparison, it might give us some inspiration or some hope. It can embitter us, make us envious of the positive outcomes of other people's lives. He says this about comparison when talking about its effects. He says, comparison corrodes because it evaluates what we see, not who they and thus we actually are. I love that word comparison or, or, or that word corroding when it talks about comparison because isn't that what comparison is like? If you've ever had something corrode or ever have something rot, you'll notice that on the outside it looks fine, but on the inside it's slowly dwindling away. 
that there's a tiny toxin that has gotten in and over time it spreads and it weakens the strength of that, of that thing. That's kind of what comparison does in our lives. It, it, it sneaks in and it creates a facade that everything on the outside is cool, but on the inside it begins to corrode. It's slowly killing us day by day, moment by moment. See, what comparison does is it, it creates a facade. It is never reality and it is never fair. Comparison... I think it does show us, though, what are the deepest values and domains of our life. If we think about Israel for a moment, they were focusing on the things that were in front of them instead of the God who was behind them. For us, we like to compare things of great worth and value to us. Our appearance, our wealth, our achievement. I know Maybe perhaps you, you've even been comparing how you've been using this quarantine time. I remember a, a, a few nights ago, I was sitting in my recliner eating some Cheez-Its and some Oreos, and then I'm watching this person talk about how they're leveraging this quarantine time. And they're saying, yeah, I'm going to lose all this weight, and I'm going to get fit, and, 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 and I'm going to get all this sleep. I'm reading all these books, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I want to do that too. I'm into fitness. I want to see if I can fit this whole sleeve of Oreos into my mouth in one time. We've all been there. We've all compared one thing or another. But here's the thing. In our modern lives, comparison is all too easy and all too subtle because of one thing, social media. Modern psychologists say that, that social media has not helped this social contrast that we use to evaluate ourselves. There's a psychologist by the name of Emma Seppelay. She's a PhD out of Stanford. She wrote this book called The Happiness Tracks. And when talking about the effects of social media and comparison, she says this. She says, when we passively use social media to simply view others' posts, our happiness decreases. Let me give you a quick illustration of what I think she means by that. Let's just say you've got a friend by the name of Lisa. And you and Lisa go way back. You were great friends in high school. About once a week, you stumble across one of Lisa's posts on Instagram or Facebook or MySpace or whatever it is you're using these days. You notice, man, Lisa's got a great job in New York. She's got a corner office. Her and her family have this great flat that overlooks the city. You see pictures of her and her husband holding hands, picking fresh fruit at the farmer's market. You read about a post of how proud she is of her daughter who just recently got accepted into an Ivy League school. And you began to think, why can't I be more like Lisa? What has she figured out that I haven't? How come Lisa got so lucky and my life just quite isn't the same? The thing is, the Lisa you see it's not the Lisa Lisa sees. Because on the other side of that screen, Lisa too is scrolling. And as she scrolls past you, she stops on her friend Steve. See, her and Steve were, were college friends and he got into medical school and she couldn't quite hack it. She sees these posts of, of him talking about how he's going to take some time off and jump in and, and, and aid as many people as he can. And, and all the likes and the comments of shares of you're awesome, you're amazing, you're such an inspiration, you're hope, keep it up. And Lisa begins to ask herself, what is wrong with me? 
Why couldn't I get into medical school? Why couldn't I have figured it out? And we begin to compare ourselves and we find that we live too often in this place called the land of Ur. Let me explain to you what the land of Ur is. The land of Ur is when we compare things that are typically out of our control. If we think about the Israelites, we think about our story from today. This is kind of what the spies, the account they said. They said, this is the land. This is the promised land of God. But what's happening here? Well, there's some people. They beat us to it. They're already there. Well, tell us about these people. What are they like? And this is what they said. These people, they're stronger than us. They're bigger than us. Man, they are taller than us. And let me tell you, these cities, they're more fortified -er than the cities we could ever dream or imagine. There is no way that we compare. We are like grasshoppers to these giants. I don't think God meant this. I think he might've made a mistake. What does our land of Ur look like? Well, he's smarter than I am. She's prettier. They are richer. Their life's a little more balanced-er. I kid you not, I've been here with this one. Man, they just seem to be content-er with their life. See, the more time we live in the land of Ur, we begin to mislead ourselves about who we are and how we should be living our life. See, what happened with Israel is they were so busy comparing themselves to those in the promised land that they completely forgot and failed to see the blessing and the faithfulness of the God who led them there in the first place. Their eyes on what was, what was before them, not who was behind them. And so their decision to listen to the account of the 10 spies leads them to 40 years of wandering. Look at how this story kind of wraps up. Picking back up in verse 34 of Deuteronomy chapter one. It says, when the Lord heard what you had said, he was angry and solemnly swore, no one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your ancestors, except, he begins to talk about Caleb and Joshua, but then verse 40, we see how it wraps up. But as for you, Everyone else turned around and set outward to the desert along the route to the Red Sea. They don't listen. They don't believe that God will continue to be good, that they are good enough to what he has already promised to them. Whenever we compare, I think God is slowly asking the question, do you not believe, do you not trust the promises that I have already made clear to you? So let me ask you this question. How do we stop chasing the carrot of comparison in our life? I think it's this. We look to God not his stuff. The New Testament offers us some great nuggets of wisdom and how to live in a Christ-like manner, seeking contentment and not comparison. 
First Timothy 6.6 6 says this, it says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, when describing that Jesus is our great high priest, in verse two, he puts it this way. He says, so fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you ever ask yourself, how do I stop comparison? How do, how do I stop uh, uh, comparing myself to him, to her. How do I get out of the land of Ur? It's not to focus on what you have. It's not to, to, to try to work towards what you don't have. It's to fix your eyes on Jesus, to have confidence in the grace, the identity that he has given to you that you are enough, that his promises are true, his promise to love you, his promise to be faithful, his promise to be good, his promise to be with you, his promise to welcome you with open arms into his eternal promised land. It is always there. Why? Not because you have earned it, not because you have deserved it, but because he has led you to the promised land through the work of his son, Jesus. And that is the confidence that when we step into faith, we can live every moment of our life with. How do we stop chasing the carrot of comparison? It's by this. We chase off comparison by chasing the confidence of Christ. That Jesus is our Lord, he is our savior, he is our restorer. He is our redeemer. That from our confession of faith, that I am a sinner, I repent of my mistakes, and I find new life through the love, grace, the work of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection on the cross. Then and only then do I wholeheartedly receive new life given to me through the confidence of Jesus. But the thing is, the thing is that that confidence it's not just for that eternal promised land with God in heaven. It's the confidence to pick up our cross daily, to reject the cares of this world, to deny ourselves and to follow him because he is with us. He is in us. He's given us his spirit that leads and guides us. Every chance that we are willing to remove ourselves from the center and say, God, I trust you. I know you are good. You have led me here and you will continue to lead me there. Remember the God behind you even more than what he has already put in front of you. Would you pray with me this morning? God, you are good. You are faithful. We thank you for the ways in which you move in our lives. May we continue to seek your goodness for the promises that you have put in front of us. It's your name that we pray. Amen. We need to spend time focusing on what matters, and that's our relationship with Jesus. We chase away comparison. We focus on the confidence we have in Jesus. Even scripture reminds us 
that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us have figured out now that the wages of sin is death and that our life has fallen short. But we're not stuck in our sin. Jesus Christ, who is blameless on our behalf, gave his life, died a death on the cross, paid for our sin, and gives us life everlasting. Eric talks so much about that confession of faith that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our life is leveraged towards that truth, that we would repent, walk away from our life, and lean into the confidence of being transformed by Jesus Christ himself. Maybe there's a decision that you need to make today. Maybe it's a decision of just saying, I've never surrendered my life to Jesus and I want to do so today. I'm done comparing my life to others. I'm done comparing my life to stuff. I'm done comparing with anything else except the love of Jesus, the love that God has for me, the surrendered life that Jesus leads us towards of selflessness, that we might live our life for his glory and his honor. I want to encourage you, maybe you've had a chance to go to fcc-online.org forward slash Sunday. There, there's a connect card. And maybe today is a decision about surrendering your life to Jesus for the first time. We'd love to have a conversation with you about that in faith. Maybe today it's a conversation about it's time to surrender our life in baptism. That our life would be buried with Jesus. That we would raise anew in a new life, clothed in the likeness of Jesus. That our confidence would be focused there. Maybe it's about jumping into a group, about getting some connections so that that spark of of, of the flame of faith that once used to be so strong would would be strengthened again. Maybe it's just to give a prayer. And we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to join as a staff and think about you and your family, your friends. Let us join with you in whatever decision it may be by filling out a Connect card and letting us know how we can walk with you in your journey of faith. We also want to encourage you maybe to respond in this time by using the Give app. We've been inviting people all throughout the month of April to use the Give app, some for the very first time. We're going to be leveraging some of those funds to help with the COVID-19 funds so that we can provide food relief, that we can help with benevolence to those in need, and we can help some of our ministry partners that we would help their ministry stay strong in this season of vulnerability. But last of all, our response is this. It's a chance to take communion. Every Sunday as a church, we pause and we reflect on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're reminded on the night that he was betrayed, he gathered with his friends and he, he took some bread and he, he held it and said, this is my body broken for you. He invited them to take and to eat. And in the same way, he took a cup. He took the cup and he said, this is my, this is my blood poured out for you. 
take and drink. He reminded them that this is now a a new covenant. That now his life would become the very payment for our sin. The agreement between God and humanity. That it would be his payment, his life, to take the wrath of God upon himself. That our sins would not be held against us. And that our life could be lived in eternity. We ask that you continue to be a part of our experience of worship today. Maybe you want to take some time just to pause and pray where you're seated. Or maybe you want to take a moment to, uh, to even just stop and take a breath. But we're going to invite you to continue with us in our worship and continue to respond however God may lead you, how his spirit may prompt you, but may we be found obedient comparing ourselves to no one else or nothing else except Jesus, where we can find the confidence and the faith to realize our value is ultimately in him. Will you continue to respond with us now?